0: and welcome to Talk with the Doc, the show where we bring your questions to medical experts for insight and information. I'm your host, Mary Renoff, and here with me today is Dr. Daniel Getz, Chief Medical Officer at Providence Sacred Heart Medical Center in Spokane and a board-certified emergency medicine doctor. Today, we're answering your questions about medical myths and misconceptions from COVID to general health concerns and tips about when you do and don't need to head to the ER. Remember, everyone, many of our questions come from our listeners via social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence, and on Instagram under Providence Health System. Use the hashtag Talk with the Doc. That's hashtag Talk with Doc for a chance to hear your questions on our episodes. Before we start, I want our listeners to know that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult a healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Okay, let's get started by welcoming our expert today, Dr. Goetz. Dr. Goetz, tell me a little bit about your role with Providence.
1: Dan Getz, I'm the Chief Medical Officer for Providence Healthcare in Spokane, Washington, and uh, handle the acute division, so the hospitals in the area. Uh, my background's in emergency medicine. I trained uh, through lots of different inner-city emergency departments in Chicago before moving out to Spokane, which is my hometown originally.
0: Wonderful. Well, let's um, let's talk a little bit today about medical myths. And when we talk about medical myths today, we're gonna hyper focus a little bit on COVID and COVID vaccine myths. So talk to me about what we're hearing people say that type O blood makes you less likely to get COVID. Is that fact or fiction?
1: Well, it's a really interesting topic. Mostly it's it's fiction. There is some research that thinks people with O-type o blood may have less severe infections, but there's really no true value to that, realizing that everybody can get COVID and transmit COVID. So really, we don't want people feeling like they're immune based on their blood type, or they can't infect others based on their blood type.
0: That makes sense. We had so many questions come in on this that just amazed me, but is there a microchip in the COVID vaccine?
2: No,
1: there is no microchip in the the COVID vaccine. It won't improve your cellular reception. The the government's not (laughs) tracking anybody with with vaccinations. And what's kind of interesting, you know, we do this with dogs, right? You can go get your dog chipped and you look at the size and the needle they use, it looks like a harpoon because these chips are big. There's no way you can fit a microchip in this tiny vaccine, it's just silliness.
0: It's such an interesting thing too, but I was like, well, maybe I'd be able to do like my Apple Pay or something easier. I don't know, maybe it's not such a bad thing, but I agree with you, I don't think there is one. Um, what about the, the comments that we've been hearing from people that the COVID vaccine could maybe cause infertility or miscarriages?
1: You know, that's not been proven, um, at all in any of the research leading up to it. And I think people are a little bit scared in that this vaccine was developed what they feel like too quick or quickly. But really when you look at the steps, the FDA took, um, the science behind the development of the vaccine is very, very sound. And we've not seen any issues with fertility in the people who have been vaccinated. And there's really no reasoning why this would affect fertility. When you look at the way the vaccine works, it appears to be incredibly safe.
0: Well, you know, we hear year after year, people say, oh, I got the flu from the flu shot. And now they're saying, hey, can I get the COVID or can I get COVID from the COVID vaccine? What do you know about that?
1: Yeah, you can't get COVID um, from the COVID vaccine. You can't get the flu from the flu vaccine either. And and the COVID vaccines really need the vaccines that we have right now are the mRNA vaccines. And so Really, when you get this vaccine, you get a tiny little snippet of mRNA, which is basically a blueprint for your body to make a tiny bit of the protein that's on the surface of the virus, which allows your body to really recognize the virus if you develop infection. And, you know, you get a lot of myths. This, this RNA does not enter the nucleus of your cell. It does not change your genetics. Really, it tells your cells for a short period of time to make the spike protein so that if you come in contact with the virus, your immune system is all primed up and ready to fight it. Uh, and we've seen in the Israeli data, data that it's highly effective uh, at preventing uh, severe disease, which is really what we wanna see. The influenza myths about people feeling like they got the flu from the vaccine, you know it's not uncommon after any vaccine to maybe feel achy or have a low grade fever. And that really is just associated with your body priming its immune system. When You start making these antibodies to combat these foreign invaders, um, that are, are identified by immune system, it's, it's not uncommon to not feel well for, for a day or two.
0: Um, when you were talking about the vaccines and you were talking about kind of the MNRA, and I don't know if I'm saying that quite right, but what we're hearing now is that the Johnson & Johnson does not have that, is that correct?
1: Yeah, the Johnson & Johnson is a little different approach. And so what they use is a, what we call an adenovirus vector where they use a, a, a different approach of getting into the cell. Uh, and it's more uh, along the lines of what we've classically used for vaccines, um, and so it's it's just another way of solving the problem. Um, they're all very effective. I've got to see the final data as presented by Johnson and Johnson, but the mRNA vaccines that we've seen are in the the mid ninetieth percentile as far as effectiveness at preventing severe disease or disease that leads to hospitalization.
0: Well, I don't know if if you've done the research on this or not, so feel free to to pass on it. But one of the things I've been hearing is that. And I don't know which way it is, but one of them, Pfizer, helps you prevent getting COVID, whereas Moderna, say, helps you uh, get through it easier. Is is that factual or true? And I may have them backward.
1: Not true. They both work almost identically. When you look at how the the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine works, it's it's nearly identical. They're both mRNA vaccines. They both tell yourself for a short period of time to make that spike protein, so that your body identifies it. And really, they're they're near identical. in the way they protect against developing severe disease, that's when you look at the statistics and all of the different vaccines are like this, not just the mRNA vaccines. All the COVID vac- vaccines, the ratings that you see or the percentages are their percent of preventing severe disease or a disease that requires hospitalization. What we don't know yet, and what we're really trying uh, to study now is, what is your likelihood of, transmitting COVID after a vaccine. And it looks like at least the preliminary data is that the vaccinations are really good at preventing the transmission. And, and we have to understand that people that have had COVID vaccines, a small percentage of them, even though they've been vaccinated, can still develop disease. But the good news about that is they're much likely to have less severe disease, You know, maybe have very minimal symptoms, hopefully not require any hospitalization. Uh, but the small percentage of people that do, you know, there is a small chance that they could end up in a hospital still.
0: I think I was pretty fortunate. I was a little bit tired and my arm hurt from the first shot. And then I realized, you know, if I moved my arm and rubbed it after the, you know, the first shot for the, for the second, it wouldn't be as bad. And the second one really wasn't that bad for me. So I, I guess knock on wood, but I, I haven't seen a lot from people that I know have had it
1: it's amazing how different everybody is i i felt fine after the first one and then after the second dose i had a little low-grade fever and was a little bit achy for a day or two and then and then felt back to normal but fair trade for having you know as much protection as i can against this and you know i have o negative blood so maybe that helps debunk the theory even more
0: <laughs> oh see i'm o as well so i was thinking that in the very beginning too maybe maybe there is something to it we have to dig a little deeper um well, you know, we, we talked a lot about COVID, but I know that our our fans and listeners put in a lot of questions about different things. So I'm going to kind of jump into some just maybe common misconceptions or questions that people have. Um, so one of them is that uh, aluminum and antiperspirant, it seems like it's gotten a bad rap lately. Is it true that it can cause breast cancer or other health conditions?
1: That's never been verified. When you dig in, I actually didn't know the answer to this question. So I did a little bit of a research. You know, you always hear these different things that, you know, pop out in certain parts of the media that it causes this or that. But at least when I when I dove in, I couldn't find any true dedicated research that linked any of these. And really the, the consensus is that they do not. And uh, so it, it looks to be, they're safe. Now, anything in, in huge doses is harmful, right? Even water. So you, you wouldn't want to be exposed to large amounts, but the tiny trace amounts that you see in things like like antiperspirants appear to be appear to be safe.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about common cold versus say a science infection, because what we had people asking is, is it true that if I have green mucus when I blow my nose, I need an antibiotic versus just having a cold?
1: Yeah, not true also. You, the color of mucus has no bearing on whether you have a bacterial versus a viral infection. And when we look at the data, the vast majority, especially in adults with these symptoms, tend to be viral. And we use the term in medicine self-limiting, which really means don't do anything it gets better on its own, kind of a tincture of time approach. And so the recommendations now are to let people go for you know 10 days to two weeks with these type of infections with no antibiotics and just using symptomatic care, which is medications or measures that help alleviate or improve the symptoms they're experiencing. So, decongestants. um, you know, if you have a little bit of pain, Tylenol, or maybe a low dose of ibuprofen, but to avoid antibiotics, the reason being is very few of those infections are caused by bacteria. And secondly, we have to worry in the future about developing antibiotic resistance. The more we expose even our good bacteria to these antibiotics, the more likely they can develop resistance um, and transmit even that resistance to other types of bacteria and make it more difficult to fight bacterial infections should you really need need the antibiotics at that time.
0: Well, let's jump into some fun conversations about drinking. Um, We had some questions that said, "Um, if I eat before I drink alcohol, is it true that the food will absorb my alcohol and I'll stay sober longer?
1: no Uh, there's a there's a little kernel of truth to that so if you have food in your stomach it will delay the absorption of that alcohol so people who drink on an empty stomach that stomach the mucosa of the stomach has full exposure to that alcohol start to absorb that alcohol as fast as it, it is possible for the stomach when you have food in there it does help absorb that that alcohol more slowly so it would take a little bit longer for you to reach the effects of that alcohol but what's most important to remember is that eating before you drink does nothing to prevent the type of impairment that you're gonna experience. You can't eat a big meal and then say, I'm gonna drive home because I had a big meal. Um, it, it, it's mostly myth.
0: What about the, uh, how, how to get sober? Some people say it's hair of the dog. Some people say it's coffee. Some people say it's water. Any truth to any of those?
1: Nope, it's just it's just your liver taking its time to chew through that alcohol. So, you know, all those different measures, coffee, et cetera, won't really do anything to, um, increase the ability of your body to metabolize alcohol. When I'm, we're in the emergency department and uh, we get folks that come in really, really intoxicated to the point of unconsciousness, really, we, we use that symptomatic care. We make sure that we protect their airway if they have trouble breathing. Um, we do tend to give a fair amount of uh, IV fluid. The joke's always dilution is the solution to try to lower the alcohol concentration. But in all, it, takes, it just takes time for your body to metabolize the alcohol out.
0: And it it really is up to each body type, right, too, because we've heard from a lot of people, well, heavier people don't get as drunk as skinnier people, but that's not necessarily true, is it?
1: Well, you know, people, smaller people, um, basically, if you take the same amount of alcohol and you give it to a large person, a small person, the concentration of that alcohol will be greater in a small person. So you just have less body mass to work with. So there is some truth to that. Um, However, there are people that are, big, big drinkers, they have a long history of drinking and the liver has gotten clever in those people at trying to metabolize alcohol a little bit quicker. So somebody that has a profound history of alcohol consumption is going to metabolize alcohol at a quicker rate than somebody who doesn't drink often. Um, Really important on the body weight question, especially in women, women tend to be smaller than men. And often we see, you know, younger women, they're, they're drinking maybe for the first couple of years, you know, after they're 20, turn 21 and they often try and keep up um, drinking with larger men when they go out. And that always ends poorly because like you said, smaller people, um, you know, they, they're not gonna be able to drink as much as someone who's larger. So it's really important We you just say less than one drink you know, per hour um, with water in between and try not to exceed two drinks in a single setting. That's a pretty good uh, rule to try and live by, you know, if you're drinking um, regularly.
0: What about alcohol poisoning? Is it is it a thing? And if it is, what is it? And and is it dangerous? I I mean, the word poison makes me think so.
1: Yeah, you know, alcohol by definition is probably just a poison, even in small small, small commodities. But alcohol poisoning is where people have drinking to the point um, that they have really um, have adverse or ill effects uh, or side effects related to alcohol in itself. So people that develop confusion, all of the side effects that people. Um, drink to obtain that little bit of relaxation, um, that little bit of uh, uh, brevity in the conversation, those are all technically related to the toxic effects of alcohol, but in small amounts. When you drink large amounts of alcohol, you get all of those symptoms, but into a much greater degree to the point where you can lose consciousness. um, You can breathe um, shallowly or even vomit into your airway. Alcohol toxicity is a very real thing and uh, kills people. And it's not just the acute phase of toxicity. People who drink in excessive amounts daily, they suffer the toxicity long-term where they're exposed to that level of alcohol so much that it impacts the the liver. and can cause liver failure. Alcohol is a really, really bad thing when you exceed that threshold, and it's really challenging to... Uh, know who's at risk and who's not, although family history seems to have, uh, tell a good part of the story. You know, I think the, the my favorite quote with alcohol is uh, Pope Constantine, I think, who said that uh, everything in perfect moderation, uh, or it's, uh, no, everything, uh, perfect moderation um, is always beat by absolute abstinence or, or something along those lines.
0: Oh, but absolute abstinence on anything we want to enjoy is always going to be tough.
1: Yeah, and I, I, like, I like to have a glass of wine or two on occasion too. So you know, I think people just need to use caution um, when they're drinking and really be wise about it and do their research and, and understand their own body in um, the rate that they're consuming alcohol, but try not to exceed those thresholds that we know are, are good versus bad for you.
0: Well, this is fabulous information. I can't wait to, to come back, but we are gonna take a quick break, but when we do, we're gonna come back and we're gonna ask you more true or false and medical myths.
2: Out on my window and they told me I don't need to worry Summer came like cinnamon, so sweet Little girls double dutch on the concrete kept me awake i thought that i was strong
0: We're back on Talk with a Doc. Today, we're with Dr. Getz from Providence Sacred Heart Medical Center. And we're talking about medical myths, mostly in the ER now is what we're going to talk about. So let's get right back to it. When we talk about the ER, let's talk about maybe some of the things that you see the most often or, or things that maybe confuse people. We, we had people asking questions about heart attacks specifically. And one of them was, do you always feel pain in the left arm?
1: No, not always. It's actually a, a less common symptom. Um, the most common symptom of heart attack is a, a deep pressure or a pain uh, in the center of the chest, or slightly uh, above the upper part of the abdomen. Um, but but heart attacks really interesting in that people, especially women, may experience atypical symptoms, um, where maybe their jaw hurts, or maybe they're just short of breath, or they're feeling lightheaded. Some people will only break out in a sweat and get cold and clammy. Um, some people will have symptoms where their heart's beating awkwardly or racing. It's really challenging, but the the scary the scary symptom that you need to pay attention to. If you're having chest pain, we really do want to see you, but don't ignore those other symptoms as well. And chest pain with pain in your arm and pain in your jaw, that's, that's, that's something wrong with your heart until we make sure it's not.
0: Well, that actually leads me into a question we got from, from uh, Yvette on Facebook. She said, my dad had a stroke last year and I'm constantly worried about him having another one. Are stroke symptoms the same no matter how many times you've had one? I guess, I guess what she's asking is, should I be looking for different signs because he's already had a, a stroke in the past?
1: Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, and if I think if I'm interpreting it correctly, um, will the stroke symptoms he had with the first stroke um, be the same type of symptoms if he has another stroke. And the answer to that would be stroke symptoms can be very, very different. Um, You know, we see some people that come in and their symptoms are they're having problem with speech or they're having problems with balance or they're having problems with vision or they're having problems with weakness in an arm or a leg. Um, You know, some people think they can't be having a stroke unless they have a a headache, and we often see people with no symptoms of pain related to stroke. But I think when people need to be very, very aware are when they have symptoms where things just, quote, unquote, aren't quite right. So, like, hey, my hand's just not quite working the way it is. My speech seems a little bit thickened. Hey, I'm having, I'm seeing a little bit of double vision. Um, we want those people to get seen immediately because stroke is one of those things where we can we can try and reverse the symptoms with administration of medications within a certain time window. And if we get past that window, the longer we let those symptoms stay present without intervention, the less the likelihood that we can reverse them. And stroke is a horribly debilitating disease. It's one of those diseases that you get that can redefine your life. Um, so we really want those people to call 911 if they're having any stroke symptoms. Don't try and drive your car to the hospital. Um, don't try and make an appointment with your family doctor the next day. Um, call
0: 911. Well, you know, strokes and heart attacks and even anxiety a lot of times present in similar ways. How do you know the difference between, say, a panic attack and a heart attack or a heart attack and a stroke or what are the differences?
1: Yeah, another great question. Anxiety is a diagnosis of exclusion, meaning that if I see a patient that comes in with chest pain and shortness of breath in the emergency department, until I've ruled out all the dangerous potential causes of that chest pain, a collapsed lung, a heart attack, a blood clot in your lung, maybe a problem with your aorta, which is the biggest blood vessel in your body, all these different things, until I've ruled that out I can't use the term anxiety and I can tell you after having taken care of lots and lots of people with heart attacks and stroke everyone that comes in with that condition is also suffering from a great deal of anxiety because they're worried about themselves and so those those are that's a diagnosis that you can't make without thorough evaluation by a medical professional.
0: Well when you talk about anxiety a lot of times then we start thinking about mental health and we did have questions come in about you know, if you if you think that you're having a mental health crisis, you shouldn't go to the ER because ERs aren't trained to treat that. But that's not necessarily true, is it?
1: You yeah, know, ERs are actually very well equipped to deal with mental illness and, and mental health crisis uh, is a true medical emergency. People that are having thoughts of wanting to hurt themselves. That's a big, big deal. People that are having thoughts of wanting to hurt others. Big, big deal. We want those people to have access to safe care 24 hours a day, regardless of where they're at. And emergency departments are very expert at dealing with mental health crises. And, you know, there's a lots of people think stigma and going to the ER and being seen, you know, they sometimes feel they'll be detained or this will affect their career. This is all confidential. And allows us to not only perform our assessment as a physician, but often we have mental health counselors in these emergency departments who are very well trained at identifying patients who are at high risk and helping them get the intervention that they need. Some people will recommend stay in the hospital. Some people will say, we want you to follow up with this counselor or this clinic in a couple of days, and we'll check on you as an outpatient and make sure you're doing well. Uh, but the, the most important message is that mental illness, if people are really struggling, the emergency department is a very, very, appropriate place to seek care.
0: Well, and I know Providence has telepsych, right? So even if you're in an emergency room, maybe in a rural area that doesn't have a psychologist on staff, you actually have access to talk to other Providence providers about that and have them see patients. Is that, is that right?
1: That is right. Absolutely. I think the focus on mental health has been been huge and we realized post pandemic or in the midst of the pandemic still everybody's suffering a little bit to some degree mental health has not done well in most people as we've navigated this pandemic and so we've really worked in the course of the pandemic to increase our access to telehealth and how do we leverage experienced providers that are really only separated by distance to get their expertise to patients who are suffering and people dealing with mental health illness, mental health crises are the perfect type of patient population to leverage that in. And so if you're in a smaller town that doesn't have access to a psychiatrist or a mental health professional in their facility, then maybe they will use that video platform or that teleplatform to, to provide access to you.
0: Are we seeing though, I mean, obviously things change over time, right? Are we seeing that that maybe residents or students that are in medical school now are getting more of a mental health overview or, or is that training changing over time?
1: You know, mental health training has always been kind of the core of the medical curriculum. Um, medicine's interesting that we have lots of different specialties. So if you're a radiologist, you probably don't have as much medical training in psychiatric illness or mental health illness as somebody who's a family medicine doctor or a psychiatrist or an emergency physician. Part of my training as an emergency physician is after I graduated medical school, I spent four years, um, not just in emergency departments, but rotating through different specialties. So cardiology, neurology, psychiatry, um, obstetrics, all those different things that really help us equip, um, help equip us to deal with um, a very broad assortment of disorders.
0: Well, while we're still on this topic and and we are talking about the ER, we we had a question come in that said, I've heard that I could be locked up for three days if I tell a doctor that I have suicidal thoughts. Is that true?
1: You know, it's if you truly have suicidal thoughts and you're at very, very high risk of harming yourself where we feel that you don't have capacity to safely care for yourself, that is a potential, but it's a rare potential. Most people we find after a a thorough assessment, um, have a less, what we call a less restrictive alternative to admission, meaning that we realize they're going to do better in an outpatient setting, maybe at home with a family member who can watch over them, or maybe with next day follow-up. So that is a possibility, but it's only a possibility for those that are most severely affected by a mental health crisis. And the reason we do that um, is to keep you safe. We want you to to do well, and sometimes we have to protect those that are most at need.
0: Well, Doc. Since we're talking about urgent care and express care and emergency rooms, let's talk about what the difference is. Because Amy from Twitter said, "I'm confused. I don't know how to know if I should go to urgent care, or emergency. What? What are they the same thing? How do I know?"
1: Yeah, it is. It's a confusing topic, um, but it's it's a very important distinction. Emergency departments are equipped to deal with kind of all comers. So people that have the most severe type of illness, people that you know have life threatening injuries as a result of a of a car accident, people that are having heart attacks, people are having strokes. People that, say, have horrible abdominal pain and need their appendix removed. Um, People that have overdosed on a medication and and need intervention. Those people are best suited for the emergency department, where we have the equipment and the highly specialized people, including nursing staff, techs, radiology, to do all of the things that we need to do. Um, Whereas urgent care is more set up to deal with, you know, the term used in the past is kind of the walking wounded. People that aren't feeling good but don't need a whole lot of interventions. Meaning they don't maybe need a CT scan of their head um, because they were knocked out. That's something we wanna see in the emergency department. Maybe they have a sprained ankle or they have pain in an extremity that they can get an x-ray and a splint crutches, maybe they're having cough and cold symptoms, but not having high fever and they can't stop vomiting and they just want an assessment. Urgent cures are great at that. Um, whereas emergency departments really can deal with everything from the spectrum of life-threatening disorder uh, to things that require, you know admission to the hospital or maybe a surrounding arranging outpatient follow-up.
0: We always talk about it in our world of, well, you go to one, if you got stung by a bee, you go to the emergency room, if you got stung by an entire wasp's nest, right? Yeah. If you fell down one stair versus you fell down five flights of stairs, it's very different.
1: Yeah. yeah. Although the bees, if you're allergic to bees, oh. they probably going to want you to go to the emergency department instead of the urgent care. But an important distinction and why, why we really need to understand the differences between the two is urgent cares are much less expensive. So if you have a, a illness that can be cared for expertly at an urgent care, we don't want you to go to an ER because it's just going to generate a bigger bill. And urgent cares will do their assessment too, um, where if they think that the issue that you're experiencing requires a higher level of care, they'll transport you to the, or they'll transfer you to the emergency department for evaluation.
0: And similarly, too, right now we're seeing a lot more usage of telehealth, and that's kind of similar, too. I know I had an experience recently where I went to virtual visit first, and they said, no, I'm actually going to need you to go into an emergency room, right? So how how has that changed? And and now do we need to explain to people the difference between telehealth versus urgent care?
1: Yeah, you know, I would think telehealth is pretty similar to urgent care as long as you don't need hands-on care. You know, if you, you're you worried you broke your ankle and you need a splint, crutches, telehealth is probably not going to serve you well. But if you're having symptoms, say the example of a sinus infection, Hey, I've got pain in my head a little bit over my nose or in my cheeks, and I've got green stuff coming out of my nose and you're not having an issue where you need an IV for rehydration. Telehealth is really, really good for that. And so they can walk you through a lot of those different illnesses um, very expertly. And it's incredibly convenient. I've used telehealth in, in the past for something. And it was, it was pretty incredible. You have somebody on camera in front of you in, and, and in a few minutes and uh, you get to do it from your own living room. It's pretty cool.
0: It's pretty cool. I actually got, uh, I was out for a run and I got bit by a dog on Thanksgiving day. And I was like, I do not want to go to an ER on Thanksgiving. <laughs> and I did uh, telehealth. It was fabulous. They called in a prescription. It was really good. Very um, good. I know we're almost out of time. So I only have a few more questions. I'm running through what people have sent us, but I'm going to jump into food detox. we got a question that said, are food detoxes safe and are they actually a healthy way to jumpstart a diet?
1: Yeah. It's an interesting question. Um, it's, you know, it's kind of one of my hobbies. I, I love everything that's kind of fitness and diet oriented but, you know, food detoxes. There's people that do fasts kind of intentional fasts as a form of detox and to kind of jumpstart your diet. And then there's people that say they're going to kind of eliminate all, you know, a certain type of food for good. Um, you'll see people where they do these cleanses and they'll say, drink only grapefruit or fruit juices or things like that. Um, you know, I think there's some science that backs you know, fasting, that there's good evidence that occasional fasting promotes health. Um, But people um, tend to go overboard, I think, on these food fasts. And really when you think about eating a healthy diet, it's having a varied diet, Um, eating a lot of whole foods. Most people know things that they're eating are bad for you while they're eating it. If you, you kind of think about it, yeah, I wonder if this is bad for me, it probably is. And so I think if people really wanna undergo that first step in really cleaning up their diet, Stick to those things that are whole foods that you're preparing in front of you. Um, but there's probably no reason to restrict everything to certain moderation. It's, uh, you know, moderation is key with diet.
0: Well, you even mentioned it. We hear a lot lately about intermittent fasting. Is that something that people should consider?
1: Yeah, I think intermittent fasting, time-restricted feedings, they're really a phenomenal way for people that are, are dealing with weight loss. They're not for everybody. You know, if you have problems like diabetes and you have to take insulin, we don't want you. Um, intermittent fasting, um, or do time restricted feedings, but people that are struggling to lose weight or they have, um, you know, type two diabetes that responds to weight loss. They tend to do really, really well with things like time restricted feedings or intermittent fasting, which really is setting a time window where you're not consuming anything with calories. So, you know, water is fine or black coffee would be fine. There's no calories in that, but most people will try and do a 14 to 16 hour window where they're not consuming calories and time restricted feedings goes a little bit farther in that you're really trying to time your intake of food for when your body most needs it and then have a good fasting period over the time um, that you're sleeping. But there's lots of really good science out there and an interesting book, um, The Obesity Code by Jason Fung, who's a kidney doctor, a nephrologist, that goes through the science behind it. But uh, the data coming out is is pretty fascinating from a longevity or anti aging standpoint. Um, there's the body can undergo what we call autophagy, which is basically um, when you go without calories for a period of time, usually longer than 24 hours to 36 hours, your body will start to digest kind of the unhealthy cells as a as a simple way to put it in the body. So occasional fasts look to be pretty darn healthy. so
0: hey. Well, while we're talking about diet, I think I have time for one more question. And and it came actually as related to stress and blood pressure. And somebody asked, is stress the biggest cause of blood pressure? And I know that diet also impacts blood pressure. So what's your take on that?
1: Yeah, you know, there's so many different things that influence blood pressure, and stress is absolutely one of them. But what we tend to see, it's 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 a mix of all those things. So maybe walking around with too much weight, obesity, very, very common cause. Um, Drinking too much alcohol can raise blood pressure. Sometimes taking too many certain types of medications, including non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen can raise blood pressure. Not getting enough exercise, not getting enough sleep will raise blood pressure. And really when you're trying to undergo holistic approaches uh, to managing blood pressure, meaning you don't wanna go on medications, we advise multiple strategies, including obtaining a healthy weight, regularly exercising, getting the right amount of sleep, making sure that you're not eating too much salt um, all of these different things, including stress management. And I think what you're seeing in these mindfulness techniques, uh, meditation really does help a lot of people. I'm I'm a big fan of the practice in my own life. Um, So that stress management is a key piece, but for most people, undergoing stress management won't be the only thing that you have to do to get your blood pressure under control if you're dealing with that.
0: Well, Dr. Getz, we're out of time today, so I'm gonna put you on. Come back and do another show with us.
1: (laughs) Oh yeah, absolutely, this was a lot of fun.
0: Thank you, Dr. Goetz, for joining us today on Talk with a Doc and to everyone for listening and sending in your questions. We look forward to future topics with more experts from Providence. Make sure to listen to future podcasts on Dash Radio under Future of Health Radio or your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and on Instagram under Providence Health System. To learn more about our missions, programs, and services, visit providence.org. Thanks for listening.